You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. So yeah, we are, as Dave said, this is the beginning of our partnership month, uh, and we are looking at this idea of putting down roots. What does it mean to partner together, to be playing a part of this uh, in this church, in this community together? We're going to start by um, a quick game. So we have eight famous partnerships here. I'm not going to ask you to shout out because obviously that would be illegal, but here we go. We've got eight. They get progressively harder. Some of them should fairly straightforward and easy hopefully this is the first one simon and secondly you have proctor and next you have lennon and a friend of mine who's a tottenham fan said this should be lennon and bale aaron lennon and gareth bale used to be on the wings for tottenham when they were good about 10 years ago but it's not bale that's the word you're not looking for hewlett and ben and Bernie Taupin and two more left. They get a bit more difficult now. Larry Page and finally Evan Biz and anyone hands up if you think you got that one. Interesting. Basically nobody. So first one, Simon and Garfunkel. Secondly, Proctor and Gamble. Correct. Lennon and Bale, no McCartney. Uh, Hewlett and, yep, it's Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard. Anybody get those first? No. Um, next, Ben and Jerry. Oh, anybody go with anything other than Jerry? I felt like there was definitely somebody shouting out something different there, you know? Okay. Bernie Torpin and Elton John. Now the difficult ones. Larry Page and anybody get this one? Yes, somebody showed it, right? It's the guys who did Google. And last, Evan, Biz, and... Oh, no one got eight out of eight. The answer is Jack, Evan Williams, Biz Stone, and Jack Dorsey were the three people who founded Twitter. There you go. Yeah, they were the people who founded Twitter. So there you go. Some famous partnerships for us. And as Dave said, today is the beginning of Partnership Month. And for those of you who are newer to the church, we do this for the last 15 years or so. We've always done this once a year. It is our chance to consider what it means to be uh, a part of this community and to play a part in this community. So before I get into those verses that Steph read to us, a little bit about why we do Partnership Month. I grew up in a Baptist church that had a pretty straightforward, normal Baptist church membership model. What that meant was that you had to be going to the church for a year before you could start the membership process. And then that process took about another year. So you'd have to be part of the church for about two years before you could become a member. Now, all the decisions in that church were made in members' meetings. Well, that, what that meant was that if you were a member, you got to go to these meetings, and then everybody in that got one vote, which was democratic, as long as you'd been there long enough to be part of this membership structure. But the problem with that, I don't know about the rest of you, but there are loads of good reasons for why you kind of take your time over things and you wait this kind of two years or so before people are involved. But the problem with a church like ours 
is that it doesn't really work. So firstly, we're a city centre church, not just any city centre church, but we're a city centre London church, which means people come and go quite a lot, don't they? They might move to London for university or for a job or for a short period of time when they're renting a flat here, and then they move out to buy a house or to have kids or all those kind of things. So London can be a pretty transient place. So waiting two years before you can really get involved with something might not be ideal. Also, I don't know about the rest of you, but Louise and I got involved, like pretty heavily involved in this church really quickly. We'd come from a church in South Wales where I'd been on the leadership team. Louise and I were the volunteer student workers. Uh, we were in the music team. I used to volunteer in the local prison. She used to volunteer in the kids church. We had done loads of things. And so when we came here, we said, right, we'll have six months for the next six months, we'll just sit at the back. We won't do anything. We won't tell anybody that we used to be involved in anything. We'll have a bit of a break. And that lasted three Sundays until our friend Ben came down for the weekend. And then at the end of the service, he said, oh, the guy leading the music, I know him. I'm going to go and talk to him. And I can remember it was when we had the church laid out in a bit of a different way. And the stage was over there. And I can remember Ben chatting to this guy and turning around and pointing at me. And I thought, this is it. This is the end of my six months off. A fortnight later, I was leading the music, and a month after that, I was leading a small group. So for us to have two years where we weren't involved, given that we were leading a small group and I was leading the music within about two months, might not have been the best way to do it. Um, when people are serving in a church and they are dedicating their time here, but might still be 18 months away from having a vote on how things happen, I'm not sure that that's the greatest of models. And meanwhile, at the same time as this, you'll have members who have moved away and haven't told you, or who no longer come anymore, or maybe even worse than that. When I was working in marketing, I freelanced for a big Christian charity and did a bit of work on their membership structure, and it turned out that 6% of their members were dead. Also, we're always trying to break down any kind of barriers to entry or anything that would stop you feeling like you were part of the community. We say that inclusion is one of our core values, one of the core things that we live by as a church, that everybody is in. But then membership creates a bit of a hierarchy in that, doesn't it? Some people are more important than others. Some people can make the decision, some people can't. And we're always just trying to get away from things like that. So we came up with this idea of partnership instead. Everyone and anyone can partner with us. You don't have to have been part of this church for years. You don't have to have been part of any church for years if you're up for it. If you're up for working with us, playing an active part in helping us to serve this community, then you're in. You're in. That's all the barrier there is. It's about committing to becoming part of a community of people of equal importance, no hierarchy, working together on the same task. Because partnership is also about involvement, isn't it? We believe in a model of church that sees people as participants, not spectators. People who join in, not sit on the sidelines. So we'll be talking over the next month about what partnership looks like and how we might commit to partnering with each other. And like with everything that we do here, there will be an opportunity to respond to this, to do something about it. Because there's no point in saying all this stuff that we say 
unless we do something about it. So that's what we're going to do over the next month. We'll look at these four ideas about what it means to partner with Oasis Church Waterloo. We're calling them our four principles of partnership. And on the last Sunday of the month, the 30th, which is our partnership Sunday, we'll ask you, if you like, to commit yourselves to following these principles and partnering with us for the next 12 months. So here they are. The first is the one I'm going to talk a bit about today. I will play my part in helping to build the community of Oasis Church Waterloo through service, interaction with others, and prayer, and by striving to live my life in a Christ-like way. Next week, Rebecca will talk to us about the second of these. I will commit to playing my part in making everyone who comes to Oasis Church Waterloo feel welcome and totally included. Thirdly, I will support the leadership of Oasis Church Waterloo, encouraging and challenging them to lead as well as they can. I think that word challenging is really important there. We are very much not saying I will support the leadership of Oasis Church Waterloo by going along with anything that the guy at the front says. This is everyone's involved in this. The challenging bit's important. And finally, I will endeavor to give of my time, my energy, and my finances towards the mission of Oasis Church Waterloo. So I'm going to talk about this first one. I'm going to start by talking about these verses that Steph read to us. The New Testament tells us that Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 friends who shared life with him, followed him, learned from him, served alongside him, helped in this aim of transforming the communities around them by telling people about God's love for them. And then after Jesus' death, they carried on this work. And the verses that Steph read to us, they talk about how Jesus started this process, how he signed up his first disciples. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. And it goes on to talk about how something similar happened with James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Now, there are a few things to say about these verses. The first thing that's important to say, I'll race through it because we've talked about this a few times before at this church, but this passage always confused me when I was younger. This guy they've never seen before turns up, stands on a beach and says, hey, you get out of the boat, come follow me. And they immediately did it. They give up their jobs, they give up their lives, they give up their income, and they just left to follow this guy they didn't know. They always confuse me. Why would he do this? But the bit that we've talked about a few times here is about the rabbinical system and what that meant for young Jewish boys in that time. All Jewish boys would have been taught the Torah, what we now know as the first five books of the Old Testament. So everybody would study the Torah. And then built into the education system at different levels, there were cutoff points. And if you weren't that bright, if you weren't that good at studying and learning and explaining the Torah, then you'd be cut out. And what you do then is you'd go and learn the family trade, which might be becoming a fisherman. And so the only ones who got to be rabbis were the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest, the most educated, the cleverest ones. 
they were the rabbis. And what they would do then is when they learned the Torah, they would go and find the rabbi and study under him and learn from him. That was the dream. That's what every Jewish family wanted for their boy. That was the highest honor. And these guys in the boats, they're fishermen. What does that mean? That means they haven't made it. That means they're not the brightest of the brightest. That means at some point, somebody sat them down and said, yeah, you're not going to be a rabbi. Probably you're going to be disappointing your parents there. Your job, all you're good enough for, is learning the family trade. Follow your dad. Become a fisherman. So when Jesus, this rabbi, shows up and stands and says, hey, you, come follow me. Of course they're going to say yes, aren't they? It's transformational for them. Their life is changed. But there's also a few other things in this. Firstly, what Jesus does is the exact opposite of how a rabbi would usually find his followers. So usually what would have happened is that the students would have sought out the teacher. The teacher was the important one. The teacher was the powerful one. And even though these students were the brightest and the best, in comparison to the rabbi, they were lonely. And they'd have to go cap in hand to the rabbi and hope that the rabbi would deem them to be worthy of following him, of learning from him. But in this story, that is totally turned on its head. Everything about this story, everything about this rabbi is different to how it normally would have worked. Jesus is talking to the fishermen, to the one left out. We'd probably say effectively the working class. And Jesus has gone to them. They didn't even have to follow Jesus. They didn't even have to come to him and ask if they could follow. Jesus has turned this entire thing upside down. He's gone to the fishermen and say, hey, do you want to follow me? And also, usually what would happen is that the rabbi would have some students for a short period of time. So the students would come, they'd serve under the rabbi, they'd learn a bit from him. And then when they felt like they had learned enough from him, when they felt like they were good enough to go and do this by themselves, they would leave. They'd walk away. And then they would be the rabbi. But this call, Jesus' call, is for the whole of life. This isn't a short-term training scheme. This is a total change of everything you've ever known and everything you will do from this point forward. There's a brilliant theologian that I love called Ched Myers, and he says that Jesus required not just assent of the heart, not just agreement, not just believing in Jesus, but what Jesus requires is a fundamental reordering of socio-economic relationships. Everything changes in this moment. Andrew, Simon, Peter, James, and John, they leave their jobs, they leave their families, they leave everything. Everything changes because what Jesus wants is a fundamental reordering of everything. Everything changes. 
And there's one more thing in these verses as well. In verse 17, Jesus says, follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. I don't know about anybody else, but I was always taught this was about evangelism. Anybody else can have heard that? It was always, I will make you fishers of men in the translation that I was brought up with. And it was all about, so I was led to believe, Jesus telling Simon Peter and Andrew that if they followed him, they would become evangelists, that they would convert people that's what this verse I was told was about. Anybody recognize that interpretation of that verse? Yeah. But it isn't at all what that verse was about. The fishers of men line there is actually referring to a line in Jeremiah in the Old Testament book. In chapter 16, verses 15 and 16 say this. It will be said, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north, and of all of the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to the land I gave to their ancestors. But now I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. Now, this might seem like a bit of a confusing one. But what's going on here is that Jeremiah is using this image of fishermen as people who are catching those who aren't living the way that God wants them to live. The same analogy is used a couple of other times in the Old Testament. This is Amos chapter 4. The title that we have in our Bible for this section is Israel has not returned to God. And it says, hear this word, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. Again, this idea that the fishermen catch the people who aren't living the way they should be living. And then in Ezekiel chapter 29, speak to him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You say the Nile belongs to me. I made it for myself, but I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. This is an analogy. It's a symbol of how God will deal with the rich, deal with the powerful, deal with those who are exploiting their power and their money to exploit the poor. So when Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men, he's not saying, I will make you into people who will go and tell people to pray this prayer and then convert them. He's saying, join me, because we are going to overthrow this corrupt system. We are going to be the people who catch those people who aren't living the way that God wants them to live. We are going to catch those people who are exploiting the poor. And guess what? I don't just want the educated to do this. I want everyone Regardless of your background, regardless of your level of education, regardless of what you thought about yourself and you've been told to think about yourself by the education system, I want you. Because everybody is invited here. Everyone has a part to play in this. So these fishermen, they put down their nets and they follow this unknown radical rabbi and over the next three years, they live radical lives. They commit everything to this. And through their lives being changed, they change the lives of people around them.
So it's partnership month. As we look ahead to the rest of this month, what can we learn from this? I think one of the things that we can learn from those first disciples is imitation and action. The disciples didn't just believe the stories of Jesus. They didn't just agree that the principles behind what Jesus was saying were good principles. They didn't just believe that this would be a better way for people to live. They imitated Jesus. They looked at what he was doing and they said, we are going to do that too. Not we are going to read about these stories. Not we're going to watch what this guy does. And we're really going to support him from the sidelines. But instead it was what that guy's doing. I'm going to do that too. There's a theologian called David Augsburger, and he talks about a concept called tripolar spirituality. In the last decade or so, there's been a massive rise in people who say that they're spiritual. Books on spirituality are big business, but in most of these books, in most of the kind of stuff that people are buying at the moment, spirituality is about self-discovery. How can I find myself? That, David Augsburger would say, is monopoly spirituality, mono one. And then in much of Christianity, spirituality is not just about personal discovery, but it's also about some kind of discovery of God, some kind of encounter with God. He says that's bipolar spiritualism. Two, self and God. But there's another way of looking at this, a third way, which is the one he talks about, tripolar spirituality. Firstly, it's discovery of your true self. Secondly, it's being discovered and discovering the true God. And then thirdly, it's truly loving others who are the face of God to you. He sums it up like this. He says, you become you. God alone is God. We become we. And that, I think, is what Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John found. They didn't just jump off a fishing boat and find themselves. They didn't just jump off a fishing boat and find out who God was. They also discovered the face of God in the people around them. And they discovered that true discipleship involved imitating Christ. Not just believing good ideas, but imitating Christ. Actually living their lives in the way that Jesus did. I will play my part in helping to build the community of Oasis Church Waterloo through service, interaction with others, and prayer. And by striving to live my life in a Christ-like way. What does that look like to you? Briefly as I end, practically, what does that look like individually? What does it look like for us to actually do this? Not just to think about others, not just to listen to all the things that we say up the front and think, well, I've learned something new about theology this week. That was good. But what does it mean for us to actually play our part? 
over the last week, I've been thinking about the parts that people play in church. And it's everything from the small stuff that people don't know about. There was a guy called Neil who was part of our old church in Swansea. And he would come to the church every Sunday morning at nine o'clock. It was a community center, so not seats like this. Someone would have to get the chairs out and put the chairs away. And every week at nine o'clock, he would jump in his car and he would drive to the church and he would get to the church and he would put out 150 seats. And then he'd jump back in his car and he'd drive home again and he'd show up at 11 o'clock when the service started. I only found out he did this when I joined the music team. And I used to show up at nine o'clock in the morning to set up. But he did it for years. And no one knew. Sometimes playing your part can be a really small thing like that. Or sometimes it can be something costly, something hard. Steve told those stories earlier from Croydon and from Manchester. The story of Zion, the tragedy there. We are involved in those families' lives. We are involved in the grief, in the trauma that comes out of that. Steve is getting phone calls over the Christmas holidays. There are memorial services to speak at. There are teachers, there are friends, there are pupils in those schools that we have to hold, we have to help. We do that because we do this. We are involved in those relationships. We are involved in those stories because of this. Because we show up because we do things, we play our part. So sometimes it's small. Sometimes it involves jumping in your car and driving up to a church building and putting some chairs out and driving home again and no one knowing. Sometimes you are holding communities together in the wake of tragedy. But you do it because you show up, because actually you're imitating the life of Christ because the life of Christ doesn't say, isn't that a sad thing? The life of Christ says, roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, and bring God's love to these communities. I've been thinking about what this means for me, personally. And I think for me, there are two things I'm going to be looking at in the next month. The first is hospitality. Over Christmas, I was back at my parents, and at my parents' place, it's one of those places where just people pop around all the time and they just pop in for a cup of tea. On the last morning before we drove back to London, um, June, who lives a couple of doors down from my parents, she just showed up at the door in her pajamas with her dressing gown and her slippers on because she'd heard that we were going back that morning and she hadn't seen us. So she thought she'd just pop around and say goodbye before we left. So for an hour, I chatted to June, who sat on my parents' settee drinking a cup of tea in her pajamas. And that was totally normal. Like I've seen June in her pajamas more times than I've seen probably anybody else in the world in her pajamas who's not related to me. Like people pop in. That's just what happens. So hospitality in that context is really easy. All it involves really is being able to put the kettle on for somebody. It's really easy to show hospitality in that kind of community. But London isn't like that, is it? I live not too far from here, just around the corner, as lots of you will know. Many of us in this room don't. 
many of us would love to live within that 500 meter radius that we call the hub, but we can't afford to because it's central London and it's Waterloo. So the idea of popping around just doesn't happen all that often, does it? So if I value hospitality, if I value that, if I say that that is something that I believe I want to do, well, actually, it just requires me to work a bit harder at it, doesn't it? It requires me to say to somebody, hey, what are you doing next Sunday? What are you doing in a few weeks' time on a Wednesday evening? I've got to work harder at it. So that's the first thing that I'm going to be committing to over the next month. And the second thing is about money. Like loads of people here, I reckon, when we first started here, we took out a standing order for 10% of our income because that's always what we'd done. But, you know, over the years, do you really look at that? You know, you get the pay rise here, you get a promotion there, you've got a bit more money coming in every month, but do you actually look at the standing order and say, is this still reflective of what I can give now? Probably not. But if we want to do this stuff, we've got to pay for it. We've said a number of times here that one of the things it would be great is if we managed to get some money in to pay someone to do some of the administrative stuff for us. But that costs money. We've got to pay for it. So practically, we need to increase our giving because the only way we're actually going to be able to get someone in to do some admin for the church is if we increase our giving by a couple of thousand pounds a month. So practically, what am I going to do to play my part in that? That's my challenge to myself. What's it for you? What does it mean for you to play your part in this community. Jesus said, follow me. Not listen to me. Not read my words. Follow me. It demands action. And in doing so, we discover our true selves. We discover who God is. And we discover the face of God in those around us. What does following Jesus look like to you? What does playing your part look like? I'm going to invite Ben and Flick to come back now and just to play some music just for a minute or two before they sing our final song to us and we close this morning's service. But as they play, just invite you to take a minute and ponder on those questions. What is our response to this? What does it look like to play our part? <laughs> 